Easter until Saturday night, Sunday morning when you spring ahead. Stay tuned for Change Agents. This is Change Agents, conversations with human rights and social justice advocates. I am Steve Wessler. We will be talking today about discrimination and what the law can do with it. Amy Snearson, the executive director of the Human Rights Commission of Maine, and Jeff Young, a Maine lawyer who represents people who are discriminated against, are my guests. Uh, Amy, can um, you talk about what the Human Rights Commission does? Sure. So the Human Rights Commission is actually a state agency. So we're an arm of the state, but we're quasi-independent. And our whole job is to uh, help people determine if they have been discriminated against and to inform people in Maine about what discrimination is and is not. And mostly we do this by doing outreach or giving people information But the primary way we enforce the law is by receiving and investigating complaints that people who think they have been discriminated against. And our job is to figure out if that's likely the case. And what kind of discrimination are you authorized to deal with? So the Maine Human Rights Act says that it's unlawful to discriminate in certain types of employment, in uh, housing, in places of public accommodation, which are places that are open to the public, whether they're privately or publicly owned, in education, and in extensions of credit. Most of the cases we get, the majority are in employment, about 70% or so, 65 to 70%. Another 15% usually are related to housing, and the same thing for places of public accommodation. Education is usually maybe 3 to 5%, and extension of credit is a pretty small category. And uh, who makes the decision at the commission whether something actually involves illegal discrimination? So the structure of the commission is that a there are five appointed commissioners, and they're volunteers who are appointed by a governor and who are confirmed by the legislature. And these volunteers uh, donate their time, essentially, but they are empowered to review and make decisions about cases. They have authority to hire a professional staff and the professional staff or people that I work with and we are the ones who do the information gathering and we we apply the law and then we make recommendations to the commissioners. The commissioners are the ones who actually vote at public meetings that we hold about once a month about whether discrimination likely occurred in a case. And then um, where does it go from there? Uh, Are sanctions um, part of the process? So our agency uh, is an administrative agency, and we are basically taking a first look at cases. We don't have the authority to impose fines. What we do is that when we're finished with a case, uh, if we have determined that there likely was not discrimination, then the person who filed the complaint has a choice. They can go on to court and start over again with their complaint. Uh, If we find that there likely was discrimination, then we are required to ask both the person who filed the complaint and the company or person that they filed it against to try to sit down to see if we can work out the dispute in a way that satisfies everyone. Uh, But at that point, the commission sits down at the table, too, because the complainant is looking for what they want um, to resolve their concerns. Uh, But the commission is also at the table representing the public interest. So we're trying to help people figure out how to keep it from happening again. And in terms of who that who that commission is, that's you and your staff who are going to be sitting with um, both parties Yes. So we're sitting there at a big table and there's the complaining party and maybe they have a lawyer and maybe they don't and the respondent and maybe they have a lawyer and maybe they don't. And then there's me and a mediator. And and how many of those sessions do you do in a year? So we probably, uh, I would say between 60 and 75 a year. And in every case, we're trying to figure out where things went wrong and keep it from happening again. And uh, of those 60 or 7 cases, how many of them get settled? Uh, The vast majority of cases get settled. So I would say um, most settle with some public interest remedies and and remedies for the complaining party. Uh, For some cases, if we can't settle it, 
we're usually going to end up in court for housing cases, cases involving housing discrimination. We're actually required to file cases in court. But we do go to court maybe, I would say, uh, between seven and ten times a year to pursue the case when we can't settle it. And, uh, Jeff, uh, is is that is this an efficient way to address discrimination issues? It can be very cumbersome. Um, I think Amy and I might agree on one thing, that the Human Rights Commission is understaffed. They do not have a big budget, and the investigators there have to work very hard. The upshot of that is is that it can t- if you go through the entire process, it can take more than two years just to get a determination whether your client was discriminated against or not. You do have the right after six months to request what's called a right-to-sue letter, which allows you to bypass the commissioner and wait no longer for the commission's process and then go ahead and bring your action. The one thing that Amy said that I – just a small tweak – is that increasingly employers are requiring employees to give up their right to go to court and requiring them to arbitrate their claims. And so even if you have request a right to sue letter, you may wind up not being able to go to court but having to go to private arbitration of your case. And is that a good idea? Is it more efficient or are there problems? Um, From my perspective, private arbitration is the equivalent of claim suppression that um, most individuals, uh, the, the arbitra- arbitrators' studies have tend to shown find more often than a jury would if I were in court in favor of employers, and the awards are uh, from those arbitrators, if you do prevail, are less. Um, the other thing is and that uh, oftentimes my clients feel that they have been subjected to systemic discrimination based on their race, age, sex, uh, disability. And so they want to proceed collectively as a group. And forced arbitration agreements often prohibit them Mm -hmm. from proceeding collectively, meaning they have to proceed individually, and that can be very costly. Amy, do you have similar or different views on on the the private arbitration? I I feel as someone who practiced in employment law for a lot of years before I was at the commission, I feel like anything that impairs workers or individuals' right to bring a claim is a problem. Um, I don't currently represent employees. I don't choose a side now. Uh, Officially, we are neutral, but I want to see both sides retain all of their legal rights and something I, I think a lot of employees don't necessarily know what they're being asked to sign away when they're looking for a job. Um, Jeff, uh, you are, most of your career has been spent as a labor lawyer. Um, How did you first get involved in uh, doing discrimination cases? Um, My route was maybe somewhat direct. I uh, worked as a labor organizer uh, in Rhode Island for several years after college and before that as a community organizer on the farm worker uh, grape and lettuce boycott. And from there, it was a community organization. The community organization morphed into a union, uh, did union work until I went to law school. And then directly from law school, I began working initially as a labor lawyer in Washington, D.C. for about six years and then came to Maine. And the discrimination end of things, I think, changed a lot for me with the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1991 or effective in 1991. I had been working in a law firm that did a lot of workers' compensation work. And so we had a number of clients who were injured on the job who found that it was they were having a difficult time uh, returning to being able to return to work. Some felt that they were being discriminated against because of their injury. 
So I started handling a number of disability claims. I think I and my partner handled the first ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act claim in the state against Georgia Pacific. And it's not a far stretch once you start doing disability discrimination to handling other types. And what what courts do you go to for Uh, those cases? When we're able to go to court these days, if there isn't a forced arbitration case, more often than not, my colleagues and I work in a seven-person civil rights law firm, Johnson, Weber, and Young, based in Augusta and Portland. More often than not, we're in federal court. Um, there's, we, do, we can file suit in state court, and sometimes Maine law is better than the federal law, but more often than not, we're in state court, or federal court, excuse me, in part because we find that the resources are much greater there than in the state courts, um, not to say anything bad about the state courts, but resources are a huge difference between the federal and the state courts. Okay. So, Amy, I I understand that you've got these different categories that you can bring cases in, but under that there's um, uh, part of the statute is um, what kind of discrimination are you being covered for, racial, um, gender, et cetera. So can you explain how that works? Yeah, so when I talk to groups about this. Um, You never know the folks you're talking to. Some people might be Rhodes Scholars. Some people might have a high school education. So I I sort of start by saying um, these laws are all based on the theory that we as Americans believe that, generally speaking, we should make decisions about who we work with and who we live with and who can come in our spaces and go to our schools based on individuals not based on stereotypes. That's what these laws are about, is saying that we should make decisions about each other based on who who we are, not where our family is from or not if you have a disability or what people assume about you. So what are called protected classes are saying that people shouldn't be able to make adverse decisions about you in your employment or housing or places where you go based on your race, based on your sex, based on your age, your religion, your national origin, if you have a physical or mental disability. Um, And there are some things that are covered in federal law, and Maine is allowed to offer more protection than the federal government does. And Maine has chosen to do that in areas like the Maine Human Rights Act explicitly protects the protected class uh, that covers sexual orientation, and that includes in Maine and has since 2005 sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, um, and federal law does not explicitly cover that. So it's an example of how state and federal law might have different protected classes. And so this would mean that um, if somebody felt she or he was being treated badly and unfairly at school, but they're not not because of any of those protected classes, um, they could go to court with a private lawyer, um, perhaps. And well, the so the school situation is actually one that we at the commission are most concerned about because we hear we get we get complaints, but also just sort of hear anecdotally about what are sort of some hostile, some bullying situations at schools all around Maine, and sometimes it is related to a protected class like sexual orientation or disability or national origin, but sometimes it's not. And and a lot of times cases that we do get are mixed. Sometimes it's both and teasing out what is protected class harassment and what is, this is what we always hear, kids being kids, just generic bullying makes a big difference. And sometimes it can be really hard to pull apart which is which, but generic bullying of just kids being kids Currently, there is not a private right of action for that. Maine does have a very strong anti-bullying law through the Department of Education, but there is not currently an enforcement mechanism through that. I think the legislature has been looking at that very recently. I did not, I've looked at that issue before about bullying, which is not based on one of the protected characteristics that Amy has mentioned. And to my knowledge, there are... <coughs> Really, there's some model legislation that's been floating around for a number of years in different states to address that issue, but no state really has effectively 
passed laws, unlike, for example, some of the European and Scandinavian countries that have anti-bullying statutes. I wanted to ask Amy a question, if I could, which is Go ahead. of the protected characteristics that you've mentioned, and I know you look carefully at this, which ones are the ones that most commonly are the subject of complaints here in Maine? In in a particular area of jurisdiction or and education? Within the employment arena, so, that's really what I know. Yeah, best. so in employment, actually, and nearly across the board, disability tends to be the largest uh, statistically most commonly cited protected class, um, in, definitely in employment, in housing, um, and, and it's pretty common in education and public accommodations. I would say after that would probably be uh, sex and race, and it, nas- race and national origin tend to get lumped together. Has there been an uptick in sex-based claims or sexual harassment claims following the Me Too movement? You know, you would think that there were. We did have a spike in employment cases. We did have a spike in employment, um, in sexual harassment complaints in employment. But to be honest, there had never been a small percentage of sexual harassment complaints in employment. Statistically speaking, for years, it had been pretty steady that about half of complaints that we got based on sex were alleging sexual harassment. That has never really been less than that. I, I've i been working on issues in schools in under different laws and different contexts for a, a long time and uh, very difficult to get girls to uh, try to bring sexual harassment uh, to the front to complain about it. Well, and even if you do, and that see the thing about bringing a complaint to someplace like the Human Rights Commission or a court is it's really hard to win because it's not enough to just say, I experienced something. You need proof, generally speaking, and proof requires paper or video or an interview and interviewing all of the other kids involved. And we all know that kids are crafty and they're doing these things where there's no adults watching. So it's one kid's word against another. And the standard for proving a hostile environment that a school would be liable for is very high. You have to show that the harassment happened, that it happened because of the protected class when it could be a lot of things, like we said, that it was severe or pervasive, that it was objectively really bad, that it was subjectively experienced as really offensive. And then the hardest one is that the school knew or should have known and didn't take effective action because people don't always tell. Um, And if they tell, a lot of times schools might say kids being kids or depending on which adults they tell, the adults might not put it together, that it's that it's more than one incident or that it is related to protected class. So we do get complaints from girls alleging sexual harassment, and it ends up being un- not unlike an employment complaint. The victim many times ends up being the one who's getting all the questions about why didn't you do this and what did you do? And it, I think for a lot of people, it can make you wonder, was it worth it? On the way up here, Amy and I were talking about a case, a school case out of New Jersey that was reported in the New York Times today about somebody who was Jewish who was harassed because of her religion. And when she brought forward a claim, the school and the boys in particular who, and their families who, the boys who had been harassing her circled the wagons and the girl ultimately wound up dropping out of school, being homeschooled, and it was a a tremendous uh, terror, disruption of her and and the community. Because people choose sides. I mean, we all know from the work that we do, in Maine, everyone knows everybody. You can try to stay confidential, but people end up knowing who's talking about what. It it is interesting when I was directing the... um, the civil rights section of the attorney general's office, um, a large portion of those cases involved in schools, but different standards um, and uh, not have not having to meet the kind of standards that that you did um, different standards really about about 
threats and violence. I haven't uh, handled many school cases. Some of my colleagues in my office have done so. But listening to Amy, the standard for finding a violation in a school sounds the same as a violation in the employment arena. And I can say from representing women in that arena for the past 30 years that you know, sexual. A lot of women. It's hard for. It's, I'm sure it's harder for a girl to come forward. But there's a lot of women that have a very difficult time, and yeah. it takes them a long time until they come forward. And then, and one of the things that you always hear from employers is, "Why did you wait so long? Why didn't you tell anyone?" And it's a hard thing for a woman to come forward. Well, we're going to have to take about ten seconds to break to. Uh, let people know that you're listening to Change Agents on WERU. I'm Steve Wessler. I'm talking with Amy Snearson, the executive director of the Maine Human Rights Commission, and Jeff Young, a lawyer who represents people who believe that they have been discriminated. Um, and so we will. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, but we would love to hear from people. The phones are open. Um, if you don't get through the first time, um, wait a minute or two and call again and call again and again uh you'll you'll get through but we really would like to hear your your questions uh so is for uh the number is four six nine oh five hundred oh six nine five oh five hundred uh so for either of you is um just generally our in the years that you've been doing this work, is it increasing, discrimination increasing? Is it decreasing? Is it more or less the same? I told Amy um, before that I want to be put out of business as my <laughs> goal. Uh, sadly, that has not occurred, and uh, I don't think it's going to occur in my lifetime. I would, in direct answer to your question, I would say that since 2016, that the number of claims that my office sees are increasing. I would say, I think some kinds of discrimination, maybe it's gotten better. Um, Which ones would those be? Well, I would like to believe that more people are aware that there are laws about sex discrimination and, and age discrimination. And race discrimination. I would like to believe that that's true, but I will agree with Jeff that I think there is definitely since even before 2016, I think the this country has always been very divided. Um, and I think there has always been people who have differing opinions about who belongs and who does not and whether it should be that the majority of people, society functions for their benefit or not. And I think that the current atmosphere in this country has sort of opened up a lot of people who maybe before felt as though they couldn't talk about it. They would be branded racists if they said what they thought. And I think right now people maybe are saying more of what they have thought for a long time, which is bad and good. I may have been a, I'm a naive old white male. I'm 67. But I had thought that things had improved after the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings in terms of the treatment of women in the workplace. And I have to say that the Me Too movement has probably blown my mind, frankly, about how poor conditions are for working women in this country and not just in small employers. Um, but also even in large employers that have programs that are designed to prevent uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. Well, so that, that's that's something I'm interested in. Do, do you think that um, employers are uh, are doing a better job of than they had in the past in terms of dealing with um, Issues of harassment. 
So I can say just from the cases that we see and the people that I talk to, some of them, some of them are. Um, I think employers in Maine, a lot of them do know that they have to have policies and they have to put up the posters and that they shouldn't say the overt things um, like the sexual harassment from the days of yore. But a but lot when we of, have a precedent that says that it's okay to grab women by their genitals, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yes, I think it's a lot of people who liked the way things were in the old days are feeling pretty good about the idea that that's okay. I think a lot of small employers, and Maine has a lot of small employers who don't have HR departments and they don't have lawyers at the ready and they don't know what you're not supposed to do. Um, I will say that it is really disheartening for me year after year after year to see the same kinds of cases that you think everyone would know better. They still come up and it's it's disheartening. So you have whether it's a lawyer or a CNA or a waitress who's who's trying to do their job and is getting harassed and maybe it's overt and maybe it's a little more subtle and then the discussion tends to be, well, why didn't they say something, right? People need a job, right? People are struggling. I, I had all the privilege in the world. Every woman lawyer I know has experienced discrimination on the job, no matter whether they were working for government or a private firm. It's just a fact. I think most large employers have implemented programs that are designed to try to eliminate sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace. Amy, you wanted to say? I, I think employers definitely, a lot of them have policies. I think they're designed to minimize risk and cost. Are they designed to thoughtfully to change minds and hearts? I don't know. I think, I think your point is well taken. I was going to go there. My experience is that many employers, including large employers, uh, and Maine actually has a law that requires, uh, I believe it's annual uh, training with regard to sexual harassment. But employers use these sort of off-the-shelf uh, programs that uh, are online modules, and I don't think anyone learns anything from that except how to game the system. They're not really learning how to, not to, how to act appropriately. So I want to uh, remind people that we are taking taking phone calls, and that's 469-0500. Uh, the conversation is fascinating and important, and um, um, give a call if you've got something to, to talk about. Uh, so I, Amy, so, oh, go ahead, Steve. Much of my work is training and sometimes on these issues in in businesses or in government on a variety of related issues to what we're looking at. Um, and I've seen spectacularly good trainings and I've seen trainings that um, aren't going to change anybody's mind or conduct. And I'm, I'm just curious um, what it is that you see out there. Is it um, hopefully, it's you're seeing more and more of of workshops on these issues that are actually um, designed to change practices. Well, um, well, I can say I don't go to a lot of the trainings, but I think there are definitely are employers that are looking for real, genuine, sincere ways to learn how to do things better. I think there definitely are. I think employers are trying to find resources that will suit their business and their budget and their time frame. And some of them are off the shelf webinars that require clicking through and, and then you check a box and you're done. That's That might be easier for a lot of employers, but I'm not sure employers know what's out there, what's available. Um, they're looking for the right thing, and they don't necessarily know what that is. So what what do you think works? What do you think if you were going to design a training on, whether it's in in schools or in businesses? So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission actually did a really big study of this uh, right after the Me Too movement started breaking. They did a big study about what actually works in training. 
What actually works is personal connection, human beings doing the training, breaking down small groups, trying to help folks sort of have a theory of mind about what it means to be the person who is other, what it means to be set apart in employment or education or housing, um, to try to have empathy for people. I was at a conference that was put on by the Maine Women's Lobby last October, and they had a very good session on what works, and it included mostly HR folks and and trainers, but one, echoing what Amy just said, what I heard and, and what I've thought for a long time is you have to have in-person training. That's going to be effective. You have to do role-playing to put yourself into uh, the other person's position. They spend a lot of time talking about what they call microaggressions, um, which is you know the little things that you and I might not realize are offensive to other individuals and how they perceive or feel when statements and actions. So I, but my starting point is in-person training, not online modules. And one thing I've heard a lot of human resources people say is they think it's critically important at, if you're talking about an employer or if it's housing or school, that the person in charge, that it be top down, that everyone see the people high up, that they are all backing this, that it's not just for the workers, that it's for everyone, and that everyone is expected to take on this non-discriminatory stance. That, that's and, a good point because you have to have buy-in from all the employees. And if, for example, you force a group, a mixed group of men and women to do a sexual harassment training, there are unfortunately going to be men who feel like, I just have to do this because my boss told me I had to go and I'm just checking off the box. And they need to understand that it's a serious problem. And so I, I think what what I've been hearing from both of you, that um, creating empathy is huge. And I'm wondering if that comes from from actual stories, whether they're told by somebody who has gone through a difficult situation or whether you've collected them anonymously from perhaps the same workplace if it's if it's large enough to be able to do that that um, that often people are saying and doing things that are harmful but they don't realize it's harmful I, I think it can be really effective to try to tell a story that the people that you're working with can connect to. So let's say you're in a car dealership and trying to talk about a situation that resonates with them, a a situation they could actually encounter or something that actually happens in their day-to-day so that it's not just some far-off thing that doesn't even even sound possible to them, but something they could actually have happen. Or like you said, like, what if a customer came in and this happened? And they're like, oh, yeah, didn't something like that happen just last week? I mentioned at the few minutes ago that I sort of got my start by doing a lot of disability discrimination work, and we've been talking about schools. And there's a terrific organization here in Maine, mostly in southern Maine, but they do do trainings around the state called the Cromwell Center for Disabilities. And they go into the schools. They have meet with kids one-on-one, or not one-on-one, in classrooms with their teachers and try to show how kids with disabilities are really no different from the other kids in the school who at least outwardly don't have any physical or manifestations of mental health disabilities. Uh, So it's a terrific organization and resource. They do hundreds of trainings around Maine schools. Well, that's that's great information, and I've heard wonderful things about them for a lot of years. So I want to switch to a different topic. We'll be coming back to some of these issues. Um, I'm curious, and Amy, I'll start with you. Um, When did you know that you wanted to be a lawyer? Uh, I was one of those odd kids that actually knew from the time they were little what they wanted to do. I always wanted to be a lawyer, and I'm not sure that I necessarily knew what that looked like or what it meant, Um, but I did. I always wanted to be a lawyer, and I never wanted to be something else, and I was one of those kids who went straight through, um, right through college and then law school, and and there, there I did it. 
So, so when you when you decided to go to law school, were uh, did you have a thought about whether you wanted to be working for a firm um, that handled a, a range of of activities and businesses, or um, were you interested in public interest law? I think I have always been a huge sucker and always wanted to... <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever accused you of that. <laughs> I always wanted to do civil rights law. Um, and I again, I'm not sure that I knew what that meant. I knew that it meant helping people who didn't have a voice. And that's what I wanted to do. And where did that come from? You know, I, I try to figure that out. I think in, in my community, we were always talking, we were always taught... Uh, I, I'm Jewish, and I was raised going to services, and in my community, people talked a lot about that you stand up for other people, and that that was a community value you were expected to do, and that we were, in my family, we were really lucky. We had everything we needed, and my parents, without ever saying it, made it very clear that this was this was privilege, and they didn't use terms like this is privilege, but that we were really lucky, and that we we had a duty to give back to people who had less than we did. I'm, I'm Jewish too. And uh, there's a Jewish concept that I didn't really know much growing up called tikkun olam, which is that we all have an obligation to do a little something to make the world a better place. And uh, an answer to your question, what, what I wanted to be was, speaking of Jews, Sandy Koufax, <laughs> the uh, Hall of Fame baseball pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Who also spent time living in the Blue Hill Peninsula, or maybe <laughs> it was um, on the next peninsula over. But. I, I've, I've heard that. I'd forgotten that. But I really wanted to be Sandy Koufax. I, I probably remember watching him in the World Series in 1962-63, and as a Jewish kid, and he was a Jewish baseball pitcher, there wasn't any... Thing greater to aspire to. Unfortunately, uh, my talent, let's say, was woefully short. So, <laughs> so, so, when did you um, start realizing you wanted to do law that was aimed at uh, really social justice issues? Well, I always knew that I was interested in uh, social justice, but I actually did not want to do it as a lawyer. My father was a lawyer. And there's a long line of lawyers in my family. In fact, when I graduated from law school, my father said I made a minion, which is ten, <laughs> ten Jewish lawyers <laughs> going way back in the family. But in any event, um, so I resisted doing it. That was part of my role as a union organizer. And I think over time, uh, although I loved that job, I came to see that maybe the better fit for me was the law. And so I then – go ahead. And what type of labor cases were you were you bringing um, or still bringing? Well, I was, among other things, the attorney who represented the strikers at Jay for those Mainers that can remember that. Back. So can you just describe a little bit about that incredibly important – time in the history of Maine? Well, it was not long after Ronald Reagan had broken the uh, air traffic controllers strike, which sort of red-lighted employers to begin to hire strike replacements, or what I would call scabs. And International Paper was one of the first companies to do so. I moved to Maine sort of in the middle of the strike. I wasn't here at the beginning because they needed a lawyer who was very conversant with labor law, and I probably spent my first five years here in Maine doing a lot of work related to that strike, but it was incredible solidarity there, and nonetheless the employer crushed the union. But but was there a any part of that, even though that the union ended up being crushed, that that, uh, that was positive? Um, only... In this sense, the the solidarity among the workers and the feeling of community among them, I think, became that much greater uh, and the interpersonal bonds that have continued to this day. Uh, that was a huge 
positive aspect of that strike that people might not see from the outside? But, but related to the strike and, and perhaps um, other issues were there, um, was there a litigation that there, actually was successful? There, there was, and it had to do, and I, this a good crowning moment in my labor career, was that after the workers um, surrendered and agreed to return to work, IP still tried to um, screw them, in my words, and they did not recall people properly, and I was involved in litigation that resulted in about a hundred workers getting millions of dollars of back pay who should have been returned to work earlier. Yeah. That was a victory, I suppose, but well, um, it's, it's a big victory. <laughs> yeah, it's a victory. Yeah. Um, so when both of you graduated law school, um, were were the law schools spending a lot of time and energy trying to help students who wanted to do public interest law uh, get a job? Was there was there an office that dealt with that issue? We had. Um, Where'd you go to law? School? I went to law school at Washington University in St. Louis. So I started my career in Missouri, uh, and the there was a career placement office, but I don't recall there being any focus at all on public interest. There were no public interest loan forgiveness programs. There was none of that. Uh, people were looking for law firm jobs. That's what they were doing. And I don't, I, you went to something like the DA's office. That was, that was a big deal. That was prominent, but anything other than that, really nobody talked about. Same. I went to Case Western Reserve in my hometown in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I'd say the same thing as Amy. The placement department, the prestige was placing people in big firms in New York or Cleveland. Uh, Jones Day has become one of the biggest law firms in the world that's yeah. Cleveland-based. Or, or getting somebody a clerkship. Yes, a clerkship a is the other thing, yeah. But in terms of public interest lawyers, no way. Well, that, that was my experience as, as well. But uh, but that has changed at this point, I think, in has significant it? ways. <laughs> what makes you think that, Steve? Um, there, there, there are far more schools that are providing loan forgiveness. Um, some of it, some schools are just giving giving money. Um, That's awesome. Um, so there's there's they they realize. Um, I mean, law schools, I think maybe doing it for lots of reasons, but, but it's, I think it's very, very different than it was. doesn't mean that there isn't still a focus on law firms, but there's, there's a place for people who know they want to do. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I do know that there are some schools with a public interest orientation, which includes Northeastern in Boston and uh, Rutgers in New Jersey. Uh, some others. Um, the phone number is four six nine zero five zero zero. Thank oh, you very much. Um, <laughs> uh, so please phone in with uh, a question or a comment. The conversation is 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 interesting. Well, um, I just wanted to say, Steve. I think among the uh, from what I read, at least, and what I see among younger lawyers, millennial age lawyers. Everything I've seen so far seems to indicate that a lot of them are willing to take trade-offs in, in meaningfulness uh, it, for less money. That's what the statistics seem to say, is that a lot of millennials are really looking for meaning in their careers. So maybe they'll be more geared towards public interest lawyers. Wouldn't that be great? Amen, if yeah. that's true. And, and I think <laughs> that the law schools realize that there are lots of very bright, dedicated lawyers, and they are... Um, and that they're going to be assessed about coming to a law school de depending on whether there is an effort to provide services and perhaps loan forgiveness. Yeah, we can hope. <laughs> uh, you are listening to Change Agents on WERU. 
I am Steve Wessler, and I am talking with Amy Snearson, the executive director of the Maine Human Rights Commission, and Jeff Young, a lawyer who represents people who believe they have been discriminated against. Uh, the phones are open, so please come, and I'm going to ask um, Amy to say the phone number. Oh, 469-0500. Thank you very much. And uh, so getting into a, uh, a difficult topic, which is, I think for a lot of people, when we think about discrimination, we think about the act and that somebody may have lost a job or maybe um, has left a job. But I would imagine that behind um, just those bare statements, the the impact, the emotional impact, the mental health impact, uh, perhaps even physical impact, can be tremendously serious. Uh, What do you see in terms of the impact on victims of discrimination, whether it's in employment or housing or education or anything else? I can only really speak to the, mostly to the employment arena, and discrimination strikes at the very core of an individual because typically it means that you are being belittled in some fashion or another and put down because of your personal characteristic, whether it's a a black person or somebody from another country or a woman because of her gender. And so more often than not, uh, most of the cases that I'm involved in, um, it's not just, you know, getting somebody their job back. It's restoring in some fashion or another their dignity, which has been destroyed by the attack on their person. And I would imagine that people who lose their dignity develop a range of problems, mental health issues and otherwise. Uh, What do you you see? Well, there's certainly all kinds of mental health issues, I think. So in, in my anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression, weeping, inability to get up out of bed, lack of desire to do anything, loss of sexual appetite, fatigue, um, many, many cases wind up with uh, strained if situations between the discriminate and his or her partner, um, which can lead to divorce in families uh, or, or separation from your partner, uh, impact on, on ch- enormous impact on children. I mean, your, your mom or your dad is, is not there for you, and it's uh, hugely impactful. And so I can say, and I, I agree with everything that Jeff has said, I mean, and we don't represent people at the commission, but we, we get to know a lot of them because they spend a lot of time with us talking about what has happened to them and, and how it impacted them. Uh, and outside of the employment setting, I think in places like housing and pub and education, it can be particularly uh um, corrosive because when you're discriminated against in your housing, there's no place safe to go. Mm. That's where you you are supposed to feel safe. And if your neighbor is is peering in at you and stalking you and watching you in the shower, I mean that's there's no pl- there's no safety. Or if your neighbors are calling, um, or the kids that you go to school with. Are, are calling you names based on where you're from, that's, you're supposed to feel safe at school. Uh, and I can give an example. So the commission doesn't file a lot of litigation, but one thing that we do pursue a lot is housing discrimination. A few years ago, we had a, an actual trial about housing discrimination um, where a family alleged that they were refused housing based on race. And one of the strongest witnesses for the family was the daughter, uh, the parents who had applied for tenancy, and the, there had been two children. And one of the children was very severely disabled. The other child was not. And both of the children had been present at the, the critical meeting when the housing was no longer available. 
And the daughter who was not disabled was one of the strongest witnesses that persuaded the judge that it really was race discrimination. And she was testifying. She had testified uh, at the investigative stage. And then years later, this was six or seven years after the incident, and now she was a teenager and she had been holding on this whole time to the feeling that it was her fault. This poor kid all this time thinking it was her fault because she was a person of color. Oh, that's, and, that's a sad story. And she and the she was asked, well, is it because your sister was disabled? Maybe it was a look that you thought was a funny look. How do you know it wasn't because your sister was disabled? And the girl said, I know the difference between a look because of my sister's disability and because of color. I've seen them both, and I know what this was. Thank you. Um, We have a call. Um, Fred from Tenant Harbor. Fred, um, welcome to Change Agents, and uh, tell me what's on your mind. Um, I'm wondering if there are levels of... uh what do, you, what do you call the people who assist a lawyer? Uh, paralegals. Paralegals. Uh, if there are different levels or any other positions or levels to assist the uh, legal system? Um, so I think that's a, a great question, and I think it would be interesting both to hear it from Amy, who works for the government, and, um, and Jeff, for you, who are working in a firm. And... Uh, uh, relatively short because we are coming close to the I'll, end. I'll just say that my office has a crack team of paralegals, one of whom has worked for me for as long as I've been here in Maine for 30 years and another woman for 20. But what I wanted to say in, is those people are the front lines and often, Fred, and thank you for your question, here and 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 are, are wonderful at handing, holding hands and just walking people through the trauma that they've experienced. Yeah, and I would say um, we at the commission, we in the past few years have been fortunate to bring two also amazing paralegals into our work that we didn't used to, and they are able to accomplish a tremendous amount, everything from helping do intake and talking to folks who think they've been discriminated against to figure out if they have a claim with us, uh, to helping our lawyers prepare for trial. And I think different paralegals have different levels of skill. I think lots of places have legal assistants who are different maybe in terms of their training than paralegals. So I think para- different types of legal support have different levels of training. We have Thank both you. legal assistants and paralegals. So I want, I want the work you do is incredibly important. And, um, but often you're seeing harm that doesn't go away. Um, so what's, what's hard about the work you do? Uh, it's, you're doing important things, you make some victories, but, but what's the hardest part of your work? I think the hardest part of my work is somebody who comes to me who deserves to be treated with dignity and respect, whose life has been destroyed because for many of us, our work life is other than our family life and sometimes more so than our family life, the most important aspect of our lives. So the flip side of that is, is that helping someone, and I've had cases where I've helped people with disabilities return to work. There's nothing more rewarding than that. Um, for me, what's, it's, uh, what, what's hard about the work that we do at the commission is probably just the overwhelming amount of work uh, because for every one of the 750 or so odd cases we get a year, there are two really angry people on either side of it. So we have a thousand angry people talking to us all the time. Um, and it's a lot of sort of negative stuff. Uh, there's not a lot of happiness involved with that process. Uh, what makes it rewarding is when we can, we are, because we're a quasi-independent agency, we're, we can call it like we see it. So it is satisfying if we think discrimination didn't happen, we're going to say that. If we think discrimination did happen, we're not in, we're not uh, um, 
beholden to anyone. We can say it. If it's the state that did it, if it's a private employer, we can say it. We think discrimination happened and we can sometimes help someone who's been discriminated against get a tiny little sliver of justice. It may not be everything that they should get, but at least we can acknowledge it. And what does that do for you? Um, It makes me feel like the system, if it didn't work, maybe it worked a little bit, but it makes me feel like I have given something back to the universe a tiny little bit. And Jeff, uh, you also have victories, um, um, and those can be in all sorts of different ways. It could be getting a job back, monetary, but um, what does that do for you when everything seems to come in right? I think that, as I said, there's nothing more rewarding than helping individual. When I look back at my career, I think of people who were being harassed because of their disability, who I helped regain their jobs with large employers. I think about people of Asian descent who were being mistreated uh, at their workplace and living in squalid conditions and helping them gain their uh, wages and, and just pay for them. So there's a lot of uh, victories that I feel that have, along those lines that have been very important to me in my career, and it's very rewarding. And if a just a short answer, because we're coming to the end, but if a, um, a young lawyer came to you and said, um, you know, I've got an offer from a law firm at a huge amount of money doing uh, sort of business transaction work, uh, and uh, but I think I'm interested in a career in in public interest law in a very short sentence each. What would you say? I would say go work there for two years, make a bunch of money, and then when you can't stand yourself anymore, then come work for me. Great advice, Amy. I might have said it differently. I would say start off trying the public interest work, and if it's not for you, big law will always be available to you. Uh, well, I want to thank you for this conversation. It uh, uh, Lots of comments about the work that lawyers do, and the two of you spend day after day doing incredibly hard work trying to help people and coming using your words to regain their dignity. It's hard to think of a better better way to spend a work life. Uh, you've been listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. Our guests today were Amy Snearson, Executive Director of the Maine Human Rights Commission, and Jeff Young, a lawyer specializing in discrimination cases and labor law. Our studio engineer was John Greenman. You can listen to Change Agents the first Thursday of every month here on WERU at 89.9 FM and streaming at WERU.org. And have a good evening. Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track the 2020 election process. I will not be our party's nominee, but I will not walk away from the most important political fight of my life, and I hope you won't walk away either. The $500 million Bloomberg spent over his three-month campaign didn't get his hoped-for results, but he said he'll put his resources behind Democrats' efforts. I've always believed that defeating Donald Trump starts with uniting behind the candidate with the best shot to do it. And after yesterday's vote, it is clear that candidate is my friend and a great American, Joe Biden. Candidates are reshuffling after Super Tuesday, which included social media disinformation about voting procedures and incredibly long waits caused by high voter turnout in Texas and California. With Bloomberg's withdrawal, his news organization will resume regular coverage of the primaries after stopping when Bloomberg entered last fall to avoid conflicts of interest. Senator Elizabeth Warren is assessing whether to stay in the race, according to a memo from campaign manager Roger Lau yesterday. He wrote, quote, this decision is in her hands and it's important that she has the time and space to consider what comes next, unquote. 
At a press conference in Burlington, Vermont, Senator Bernie Sanders declined to call on Warren to drop out and once again disavowed social media attacks on her, purported to be from his supporters. Elizabeth Warren is a very, very excellent senator. She has run a strong campaign. She will make her own decision in her own time. And in terms of vitriol online, I'm disgusted by it. Sanders lost Texas, where election officials seemed unprepared for high turnout. It was up 40 percent from 2016, despite lawmakers closing 750 polling sites over eight years, many of them in areas with large black and Latino populations. Texas also banned temporary voting locations often found on college campuses. The longest waits were in Houston's Harris County, which is 43 percent Latino and 19 percent black. Ray Shrell, a Sanders volunteer, tried to bring a friend to a polling site near Houston's Lone Star Community College campus. The line was just, you know, it had to have been at least like two or three hours. It was just people 